Hello and welcome to the third instalment of The Thinkers, the Monocle Weekly's new series of thoughtful debates that take a deeper look at the way things are and potentially will be over coming months and years. I'm Andrew Muller. Today we're going to be discussing themes around politics, risk and how the world might move beyond COVID-19. On today's show I'm joined by Ian Bremmer, political scientist and president of Eurasia Group. He also teaches at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs and is a columnist and editor-at-large for Time magazine and the author of books including the best-selling Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. He joins us from New York City. Philip Pettit is also with us. He's a philosopher and political theorist. He's the L.S. Rockefeller a Professor of Politics and Human Values at Princeton University and also Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the Australian National University and the author of several books on related subjects. He joins us from Canberra. And Theresa Bejan, uh, Associate Professor of Political Theory at the University of Oxford. She's a former Mellon Research Fellow in the Society of Fellows at Columbia University and was previously elected as the final Bolzan Skinner Fellow in Modern Intellectual History at the University of Cambridge and is the author of Mere Civility, Disagreement and the Limits of of toleration. Teresa is in London. Let's start what is going to be a fairly broad discussion with an extremely broad question. The big question, perhaps just the delusionally optimistic one, uh, which, Philip, I will put to you first. If we think of the pandemic through which the world is now struggling, is there any sense at all in which this is actually an opportunity? Well, I think it is an opportunity in some ways. Unfortunately, it probably more obviously, it's a great danger in others. The sense in which it's an opportunity, well, I think that it's made people aware worldwide and certainly in many of the Western societies, democracies where we live, all four of us, it's made us aware, I think, made people aware that we really depend on government. Now, that may seem so obvious that we always depended on government, but there has been a sort of push over many years towards a, I think of it as a slightly empty cosmopolitanism, you know, story under which the state is really just a bit of a nuisance, that the markets can handle it all, that uh, when the state gets involved, it often gets involved as a, a nosy sort of intervener or regulator. So that sort of neoliberalism picture under which the state is there maybe just as a basic resource of organizing things, basic law and so on. But really it's the it's the flow of the market, it's the momentum of the market that keeps civilization in place and that's where we're going and the state's going to retreat more and more. I think it's really given the lie to that because it's clear now to, it must be clear in almost every country, that it's really the state that determines, first of all, that the economy is going to stay working, that the currencies are going to stay live and so on, that there's going to be a financial world and employment through this sort of crisis. And that actually it's always played that role, but that role has in many ways been hidden. You know, so the push towards I think uh, towards decentralized currencies that we'd be free of the state. All of that now looks so unreal when you realize that it's government that keeps economies going, that keeps the currency live. But also in other ways, it's pretty clear that it is the state that determines what our basic liberties are. And that 
you know, the states that we uh, cherish, so to speak, that give us a substantive set of basic liberties, that they do it by means of law, and that the liberties we enjoy, we enjoy on the condition that it is for the overall good of the community. And when you hit a crisis like this, it's pretty clear that those liberties have got to be restricted, and in a way that should still treat people as equals, of course, and only as an emergency measure, but that they have to be restricted when you're facing this sort of spectre that we're facing with, with the prospect of a continuing pandemic. Ian, there's a point in there which focuses my initially extremely vague question quite nicely, in fact, which is about the role of the state, a theme to which we will return later in this discussion. But if we think about opportunities, is there an opportunity here for dramatic and ambitious intervention and reform by states? The obvious comparison, I guess, being the foundation of the National Health Service here in the United Kingdom immediately following World War II. Well, I mean, I think one of the things that makes me most optimistic, because this is such a truly global crisis, it's affecting everyone, wildly different types of states and governments, it's that you can find success stories across the spectrum. There are rich countries that got it right, like New Zealand. There are poor countries that have gotten it right, uh, like Argentina. There are big countries that have gotten it right, like South Korea, there are tiny countries that have gotten it right, like Norway. There are democracies that have gotten it right, like Germany and Canada. And there are authoritarian states that have gotten it right, like Vietnam. So it's not that government is broken or even that a particular type of country doesn't work. Rather, it's that in all the countries I just mentioned, you had leaders that didn't politicize the crisis. In all of them, they led with expertise, they led with science, they led with health care, and they didn't cheerlead. And by the way, in all of them, you didn't have elections coming up soon. And that hurts too, right? So, I mean, I think it's really interesting to note that in this, the worst crisis of our lifetimes, that there are lots of models you can point to, to folks that are actually getting it right. Now, that's very different from saying that the United States or China are getting it right. And it's very, and those are the two largest economies, so that's a big problem. And it's also very different from saying that we're somehow, you know, managing a global response. That That's the big failure, is that there's no global response the way that we had something that looked like a global response in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. But that shouldn't surprise us because we were fragmenting so much both inside a lot of democracies, but more importantly, so many of our global institutions were increasingly misaligned with the balance of power. Now that's a cyclical structural reality, right? I mean, there are long, there are economic recessions, there are geopolitical recessions. We happened to be in a geopolitical recession and then a massive crisis came. That's really unfortunate timing, but it shouldn't surprise us. And it doesn't mean that we're never gonna be able to handle anything globally going forward, like climate change, for example. Teresa, as Ian correctly points out, 
In terms of successful responses or relatively successful responses to COVID-19, we have not been able to see that one particular system of government has a monopoly on success. But as Ian suggests, what the governments which have succeeded do have in common is, well, not to put too fine a point on it, a basic level of organisational competence. Is it possible or is it perhaps too much to hope for that we might be seeing or about to see something of a renaissance of the expert? Uh, Again, I think that one of the things that Ian pointed out is that, you know, responses to this look very different in different places. And one hope one might have, especially for countries like the UK or the United States, is that this could be a kind of corrective to the anti-expert populist mentality that maybe has been cropping up over recent years. I suppose I'm cautiously optimistic in the case of the United Kingdom. I'm less optimistic in the case of the United States. To take it back to a sort of more general point um, that comes out of what uh, Ian and Philip were saying, I mean, one thing that I'm optimistic about is simply the sense that this is an opportunity for puncturing the sense of exceptionalism that a lot of citizens of Western liberal democracies have about their own place and sort of sense of security in the world, and specifically the sense of exceptionalism of Anglo-American liberal democracies. So the pandemic is a leveler in that sense. We no longer have the sense of being impenetrable or necessarily immune. Epidemics are something that strike in Asia, but not over here. So that's a kind of humbling, maybe, that would open us up culturally more to the sense that there are people who know better about a certain limited area of knowledge and we should defer to their expertise. But the other thing that I noticed, at least in the UK, and it's perhaps, you know, a glimmer of hope here is also a sense of so a deparochializing on the one hand of sort of not seeing ourselves as exceptional, but also a kind of reparochializing in the sense of an awareness of our dependence on each other. Right. So a kind of return to the sense of dependence on the people in your community, a sort of resurgence of virtues of neighborliness. And there, too, there's a potential for the growth of trust. Once again, because if we're going to believe in experts, I mean, that's an issue of trust. So I don't know if I would describe myself as optimistic. I think there's an opportunity. I'm not sure that countries like the United States are really in a position to take it. Ian, we'll talk more shortly about how various governments have responded and what we might learn from that. But just before we do that, you mentioned earlier that this is as great a crisis, certainly, as any of us having this conversation will have lived through. But if you think back to previous moments within our lifetimes that were supposed to change the world, say the collapse of the Soviet Union in the late 80s, early 90s, the terrorist attacks on the United States in September 2001... Can you think of mistakes that were made at around that time in terms of responding to a catalyzing moment that we should look out for this time? Well, I mean, sure. After 9-11, I mean, the longest war of uh, American history, still in some ways ongoing in Afghanistan and, of course, Iraq. I mean, two massive failed wars, trillions of dollars spent, millions of lives disrupted hundreds of thousands ended. That's a fairly big mistake. And, uh, you know, if you think you said the the collapse of the Soviet Union, I mean, the, the Americans were focusing on a peace dividend, but because it sort of fell into our laps, our meaning the United States, since I'm an American, we didn't really take it as an opportunity to try to rebuild 
the former Soviets. We offered them shock therapy, but nothing like a Marshall Plan. And, and certainly that was part of why Russia ended up with a kleptocracy in decline. And their leadership largely blames the United States and the West for that. And we, we no longer have a remotely constructive relationship with Russia. It's actively hostile and antagonistic. So sure, there were very big mistakes that were made. The one thing that's obvious after 9-11 that has a clear connection with the pandemic is that, you know, the immense amount of money that was spent on the war on terror, both externally to the United States and internally the United States at the expense of other concerns. And, you know, when you're fighting a war on terror, then everything else has to be subsumed to that. You can't talk about privacy because you're unpatriotic. You're fighting a war on terror. We can never have another 9-11. We can never have an, another threat like that in the U.S., no matter what the cost. And, of course, that, that really throws any, any objective analysis into the garbage. And, and the danger that you have with this pandemic is if suddenly we are fighting a war against coronavirus and we throw the kitchen sink at that, you also have the potential of stripping personal privacy and liberties away because of the importance of, you know, a digitally driven geo-tracing, contact tracing, immunity passports, the surveillance, those sorts of things. You could also imagine vastly overspending on lockdowns and hurting innumerable numbers of people as a consequence, as opposed to trying to balance out not just the actuarial sense of how many human lives and year lives are being lost, but also what else you could be doing with that money that would help people. There are all sorts of lessons uh, to be drawn, but you know, of course, because a crisis this large doesn't come up very often, thankfully, and because when they do, they're fairly unique in their manifestations, the lessons that people tend to learn also tend not to be generalizable. Okay, well, let's move along slightly and look at what the pandemic has so far taught us about how governments have responded to it and how the societies they govern have responded to it. Because it is commonly said of individuals and societies that crises build character, and it's probably more accurate to suggest of individuals and societies that crises reveal character. The pandemic has furnished us with ample reinforcement of that latter view. Those leaders and governments already known for competence, seriousness and compassion have tended to deliver good results and those leaders and governments who have acquired reputations for ineptitude, frivolity and divisiveness have also conformed broadly to expectation. Theresa, where we are right now in the United Kingdom, they are slowly but surely getting around to extending the use of face masks in public here in England at least, which has been behind Scotland. How surprised slash depressed are you by the fact that something as rudimentary and, you know, reasonably non-onerous as the wearing of face masks during the pandemic of an airborne disease has actually been turned into a culture war issue? I, again, I go back to Ian's comments about the successful nations being relatively those that did not politicise the crisis. And yeah, I mean, so I do find it depressing the extent to which, and again, I think it's, it's less so in the UK than in the US, but um, the extent to which simple public health measures like that have been politicized or, as you say, sort of brought into this culture war. I've noticed more masks around. Again, I think about the puncturing of this sense of invincibility, right? This sense that actually people who look like me, 
who live in rich, developed Western countries too are mortal and thus need to take these small actions to prevent against disease. But the problem with masks is that um, it's a huge collective action problem. I don't wear a mask to protect myself. I wear a mask to protect you. And culturally speaking, I do think that's still a hard sell. Masks in the UK, I think, are easier to sell when people are under the misimpression <laughs> that they're protecting themselves. I think we're not alone in being in a crisis moment, but there's this crisis of British culture that says we have a sense of community, we have a sense of national unity or purpose, you know, with the nations among us relative to the United States. But unfortunately, we can't sort of take all that much solace from that comparison in the current situation. Indeed not. Philip, have you been surprised by the degree to which the populations of countries have needed to wait for directive or instruction or suggestion from their government? Should we need to be told by our governments to do something like wear face masks? Shouldn't we be able to figure that out for ourselves? Well, I think what's really important with anything like that is that people don't feel they're on their own. You've got to feel that uh, I'm wearing a face mask and everybody else is too, because if I'm the only one wearing a face mask, it's not going to give me very good protection. I'm going to be something of a sucker. Now, in order to establish that sort of coordination across a society, I think someone has to take a lead. It doesn't bubble up because people are on their own, so to speak. They're afraid of being being out in front, being the only one making an effort. So when government leads and actually puts in, in many cases, sanctions, you know, against failing to behave properly, everyone comes to believe that everybody else is going to behave in that way too. So that is really, really important. That's a role where governments like, uh, well, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, I think have been really quite to the fore among the advanced democracies where... They're also parliamentary democracies, which I think is very interesting. And they're also democracies with a vast array of authorities recognized publicly, apart from just the elected authorities. So there's almost not the possibility of anyone gaining the sort of position of a Bolsonaro or indeed even a Trump. It's clear, I think, to people within these societies that government isn't just the political leader, you know, claiming to speak for the people out there with the the messianic voice, as it were, that government is about a whole layers of authority and interconnections of authority where, you know, scientific experts are given their proper role but are forced to meet where, you know, with uh, those in and forced to speak to the people. And where, for example, in Australia has been one very fine development, actually, which is quite novel in this country, is that they established a national cabinet, so-called, which involved the Prime Minister, of course, of the Commonwealth, the Federal Republic, but also the heads of each of the states. And that created a sense of cooperation, which, you know, has really delivered a terrific result. You know, something like four people in every million have died in Australia. That's the same in, in Norway. In England, it's well into the 600 people per million have died. Now, I think England is an interesting case because uh, it also is a parliamentary democracy. You would have expected, so to speak, to go in the same way. And yet what's happened, I think, is that Johnson had assumed a sort of populist role 
partly as a result of the Brexit debacle over the last few years. And he tended at the beginning to lead from in front with vague talk about herd immunity. And then, of course, things run out of control. And one thing that happened there, I'd be interested in Theresa's comment on this, is that when it was discovered that Mr. Cummings, his closest advisor, had actually broken the very regulations that were being laid down from uh, Downing Street, from the government, it sort of indicated that there's a special, you know, like narrow ruling class centered around Downing Street and, uh, and around Johnson. And they really are letting us down. It's not a community deal. So that I think Britain's failure to do as well as the other parliamentary democracies is, I think, a reflection of that. It's really important that while government leads, it gains the trust of people. People have a sense that everybody's in it together. And they have a sense that government isn't just one person, so to speak, like the Messiah, leading the country in the way Bolsonaro has obviously sought to lead Brazil, or indeed Trump seeks to, it seems, lead the United States. Well, actually, Theresa, on that thought, does it strike you as strange that the populists, Bolsonaro, Trump and Johnson, to name but three, have actually not got out in front of this, have not embraced the science, have not erred on the side of caution, just on the basis of naked self-interest. I mean, absolutely directly where Bolsonaro and Johnson are concerned. Bolsonaro has been confirmed to have contracted COVID-19. Boris Johnson was in intensive care and by some accounts was very nearly killed by COVID-19. But in the cases of all three men, and with populists in general, it's their voters who are most at risk. It does disproportionately disproportionately affect older people, and it is older people who disproportionately vote for populists. I think the way you've put it sort of answers the question, which I don't think that the popularity of these figures was ever about naked self-interest. A lot of it is to do with a sense of pride and self-esteem. The idea that this leader is a person who sees me and sort of stands up for me, and in a kind of perverse way, pride goeth before health in this case. In the US, we want to see Trump sort of have Fauci in his orbit, but to stand up to him and not to be pushed around. It's not a new phenomenon to notice that people don't tend to act in their own self-interest in politics, right? As we, we continually rediscover this as some kind of sort of great surprise. But it does then suggest that what's going on is once again a, a cultural issue. And just to pick up on what Philip said about that moment in the UK when it was revealed that Dominic Cummings had violated the lockdown measures. I mean, I really, that was a really crucial moment. It was the crucial moment that undermined this kind of incipient sense of mutual trust and the goodwill that Johnson had earned by getting sick. People were willing to forget the uh, insistence on handshaking until the 11th hour, right? Because he put his own body on the line. There was, again, the sense of, oh, we're, we're all embodied. We're all in this together. He's like me. He's at risk, too. But then in the unwillingness to sanction or fire Cummings in any way, it was the sense that, oh, right, you know, the rules are for thee, but not for me. We're not, in fact, in this together. Something similar has gone on with Trump in the US in the sense that he has been unable really to connect with his base on the matter of the coronavirus. I mean, he's been all over the place. And so there hasn't been a kind of consistent signaling 
from him. And so, and you see that reflected in his poll numbers, right? The, the fact that he's losing quite a lot of his popularity because he hasn't been able to, to capture the cultural moment. But no, I'm not, I mean, I'm not surprised that people act <laughs> against their self-interest. What I'm interested in is, is how do we create that culture of mutual expectation and cooperation and trust that Philip was talking about? And it seemed to me that the UK, there was a moment in England that was then missed. Ian, just a final thought on this topic before we move along a little bit and look at how international organisations have responded to COVID-19. But that extraordinary response by some adherents, especially to populist leaders, fans of Trump and Bolsonaro, Johnson and similar figures, these are people who pre-pandemic tended to coalesce around an array of grievances which, if not entirely imaginary, were often exaggerated. How surprised are you by their determination to perceive COVID-19 as a hoax and behave as if it isn't happening when it very clearly is? Well, obviously it's disturbing. The anti-science sentiment is disturbing. Worst in Brazil, uh, where we've now had two health ministers, both quite competent, resign, essentially forced out by the president because he just refuses to take it seriously. And that's put a lot of Brazilians at risk. Uh, but, but I will say, I mean, w- w- with due respect, that uh, Teresa's point about the United States and Trump isn't quite right. Trump's approval ratings right now are 40 percent, which is roughly what they've been all the way through uh, his blended approval. They, they were 46. He had a brief bump at the beginning of coronavirus when it was mostly hitting the blue states and not the red states yet. And so he was picking up some independence. And now he's back to his core. But his base, he hasn't lost his base at all. And there is a consistent message. The consistent message is these people, these Democrats, these egghead scientists want to lock you down. And I want to get the economy reopened. I want to get the schools reopened. I want us to, you know, if you want to wear a mask, that's fine. You don't want to wear a mask, that's fine. I'm focusing on not this flu. I'm focusing on the economy and jobs. And I was doing a great job in getting jobs back to the economy. And now the Democrats are trying to destroy the economy so that I'm going to lose. And don't you let them. And the Democrats are pursuing a hoax. Now, I'm not at all suggesting, Andrew, Teresa, that I think that all of that is correct. I'm simply saying that the idea that Trump has been inconsistent around this issue or has lost his base is wrong. And in Brazil, one of the reasons why it's very unlikely that Bolsonaro is going to be impeached, despite the fact that it's pretty clear he richly deserves it, is that his approval ratings are still way too high and Congress isn't going to go after him as a consequence. Remember, you know, there was an impeachment in the United States, went through the House, controlled by the Democrats. One Republican, largely for personal reasons, Mitt Romney, voted against him. This was after the president of the United States read to rights was trying to get the Ukrainian president to politicize and publicize and open an investigation against Joe Biden. That's clearly impeachable. Didn't happen. Why? Because Trump's been consistent and has an extraordinary hold on his base. So I wouldn't underestimate the hold 
that these figures have simply because the anti-establishment sentiment is so deep and has been unaddressed by the establishments in so many countries for decades now. So these people are angry and it's not just their deplorables, it's not just their racists, they really do want to throw the bums out. And if that means they're picking a bum themselves, so be it. Well, let's move along somewhat and take a look at the role that international institutions are playing now and might perhaps play in the future. The COVID-19 pandemic should, in theory, have been a moment at which multilateral institutions demonstrated their value, bringing global solutions to an indisputably global problem. The World Health Organization in particular has been widely criticised, if not always fairly. It's hardly the WHO's fault that the pandemic began, nor that the current president of the United States has exploited this moment to announce America's departure from the WHO, something he has clearly long desired. But are the WHO and other institutions actually meeting this moment? Philip, first of all, I think we should look at the standards by which we judge such institutions. Are they kind of a victim of our expectations? There's always this idea that the WHO or the UN or the EU or whoever should do something, while we often tend to forget they really are no more than the sum of their member states. Well, I think that's important that they are. And I think they're seen as the sum of their member states, so that My expectation is, although a lot depends on how long this pandemic continues, of course, but my expectation is that as people realise that they depend more and more on government, I think that the tribalising sort of politics of someone like Trump or Bolsonaro or a lot of these leaders is going to look very hollow because it's clear that in each society, it's no longer a matter of political tribes. We're all in this together. Now, as we will have to put trust in our governments, both internally to organise and lead and so on, if it continues in particular or any time, presumably there's going to be a huge push on governments to act together, given that, as you say, that is the likely to be the most effective way of acting on this front. And that means acting through organisations um, like, of course, the WHO, Who's to say what happens in the American election? I, I assuming, let's suppose on present figures that Biden gets back in. Biden has said that he will re-enter or sign up again to the WHO on the first day of office in January. Well, that will be a huge boost, for example, if that happens. And I suspect we'll still be in the middle of the pandemic in January. If he takes over and takes that move, I think that could be a real spur to other countries to operate through these organizations and to establish the sort of tracing, not just within countries, but across countries, that is going to be essential to deal with this pandemic, especially up to the point when we find, if we ever find a vaccine. So I do hope that there'll be a push on governments by the people who now see those governments as crucial for their welfare, to operate together in order effectively to act internationally to mitigate the effects of the pandemic and to create a new world where we can live in some way with it short of a vaccine. And Theresa, regardless of what happens in this year's presidential election in the United States, do you think that the last three and a half years or so had perhaps demonstrated that the world had become too reliant on the assumption that the United States would be the default leader of international responses to anything? 
I think that that's right. I mean, I would just say in response to Ian, so yes, point taken. I, I think simply what I would focus on is that Trump was not elected in 2016 by his base alone. And I think that what you see is, again, just the increasing alienation of a lot of moderate Republicans. I mean, this is a longer story, of course, but to return to the question of um, the place of the US in the world, I think a lot of the assumptions that we had about the world order, the place of the US and English speaking democracies as kind of at the forefront and in a way invincible has been seriously punctured by this pandemic. Just on the question of international organizations though and the place of the US in them, right? I mean, so how worldly is the WHO if the US is no longer involved. Unfortunately, the WHO is open to criticism about the way that this was initially handled. And one thing I've noticed is the unwillingness to sort of account for the fact that China was slow to report, that numbers coming out of China have been unreliable, has really opened up this opportunity for Trump and his supporters to call into question the whole joint endeavor of international public health. I mean, one thing that I'm more of a kind of micro politics, politics of everyday life person, one thing I've noticed is that just as we're having these international institutions weakening because of the lack of American leadership within them, we're having this increasing sense of kind of transnational belonging where the sense of uh, all politics is in a way global, the way that social media connects people, the way that Black Lives Matter protests went global because of a police killing in Minneapolis. I mean, there's a way in which politics is still happening, but it's sort of slipping the bounds of the institutions that were created in the 20th century to manage them. And that I think is very worrying because it sort of points to a possibility of anarchy as of, and you know, the spoils going to whomever sort of manages to put himself at the head of these kind of transnational movements, as opposed to going through the procedures and processes of the institutions that are in place. Well, Ian, we did start out at the top of this program talking about how we'd been reminded in recent months of the importance of the state. But there is also this idea that has been at large in recent decades, especially that there just are some things that corporations, NGOs do better or more efficiently or faster than the state. Has that line of thinking been persistent enough to be unhelpful, do you think, in the handling of the pandemic? Or perhaps have there or are there instances in which that is the case, that the private sector has been able to do things better than the government could? It's a lot tougher to count on the private sector when you're seeing the level of economic destruction around the world that you have right now. Not to cry for CEOs, but I mean, you know, they make an enormous amount of money. They're also under an extraordinary amount of pressure and they don't last very long. And then you see the likelihood that so many companies are going to go bankrupt or they're going to require government support just to continue operations in that kind of environment, in this three year plus global economic contraction, the idea that CEOs on top of that are going to be a big part of the solution, I think is not the case. I think governments are going to become more important, both for good and for bad, in response functions for populations around the world. And again, the problem is not that all these governments are failing. Some of them are doing quite well. Merkel, for example, has also truly reasserted herself and rebuilt for herself a legacy that had looked quite failed 
before the pandemic hit. Now she's at 80% approval. And not only is she leading Germany well in terms of the economic and healthcare response, but increasingly trying to do so for Europe as well. But, you know, the international institutions are very weak. And in part, they're weak by design. The World Health Organization, all of the stakeholders didn't want an institution that could call the stakeholders out. So you can't go public against the Chinese when they cover up and refuse to share data for the first month of coronavirus uh, human-to-human transmission. And you can't call the Americans out when they don't have test kits that work, even though they easily could have bought them from Germany. WHO says it privately, but they don't say it publicly because the governments that are funding the WHO refuse to allow a strong organization. I want the WHO to persist. I think it's appalling that Trump has politicized it and has said that we're gonna leave this organization in the middle of a pandemic. It's better than nothing, but it's nowhere close to the kind of international organization we would all like to have to help lead a global coordinated response for efficient supply networks, supply chains of personal protective equipment, or for being able to avoid vaccine nationalism as we create hundreds of potential vaccines, most of which fail, and those of which succeed will probably be controlled by governments and go to the highest bidder. These are all problems of weak multilateral institutions, and that's what I think we have to hope we can do the most to address in a changing geopolitical order. I think that uh, Ian is absolutely right, that the corporations are fortunately, in some ways, unfortunately in others, are are going to be weakened and the governments are going to be strengthened and powered over the next few years. That's what I began with. I think it's really important, though, that uh, we don't see the international institutions as an alternative to governments. My hope is that if governments become more empowered, more assured of themselves, seen as more essential by the population at large, one hope might be that the governments internally don't tribalize so much around, as it were, tribalized politics, that they go for the more sort of inclusive with different sides of politics uniting. And I think if governments were to do that, they could inject power into these international institutions and might be actually pushed by their people to do that, since that represents the only way of really coming to terms with the pandemic longer term. There is, though, we haven't talked about China very much, and um, it's a difficult topic to cover in just a brief time, but that really is going to be a challenge, isn't it, internationally? Because China does appear to be being very bullish at the moment and making the most of the crisis in its actions in Hong Kong, in the South China Sea, in other countries. It's obviously looking for a leadership role, but it's looking for a sort of world where China leads rather than a world of these international institutions backed by governments on different sides. That's a real threat there, I think, to the emergence of a strong international order backed by strong governments. I think that that's totally right. I mean, so uh, Walter Scheidel, who's a historian and classicist at Princeton, has written you know, about how over time, epidemic disease has acted as a leveler, right? So after the Black Death, we get a kind of social leveling. This is a pattern that you see again and again. What's interesting about the current pandemic is that socially or economically, it does not seem to be the case that this is going to lead to any great leveling within 
countries, right? Inequalities are exacerbated, seem to be getting sort of worse than ever. But there is this potential for leveling between countries, right? A sort of evening of the playing field internationally, but for what Philip had just pointed out, but for the bullishness of the Chinese. And I think one place where corporations and CEOs, you know, who I shan't cry for them, but might have a chance of actually doing some good is in being more willing than international institutions like the WHO can be to call out Chinese misbehaviors. Maybe that's wishful thinking in the midst of an economic downturn. Surely it is. But I think it's an opportunity for refiguring the sort of roles of who we think is meant to hold governments to account and not to sort of cede the ground to China simply because there's a sense that the United States is sort of um, no longer in the position of leading internationally that it was. The final discussion point I wanted to introduce today was what the current pandemic and the imminent future might mean for our relationship with the nation state. Because one of the early consequences of the pandemic, of course, was this abrupt process of deglobalization as lockdown nations closed their airports and hunkered behind their borders. This was a huge jolt to a world which has never seen its people moving so far or so freely and taking that ability so much for granted. Millions of people in Europe especially live in one country and work in another, and many millions more are accustomed to thinking of as holidays, journeys that their grandparents would have regarded as expeditions. Philip, near the top of this show, you made reference to what you described as uh, this sense of empty cosmopolitanism, especially among um, modern inhabitants of the developed Northern Hemisphere, that they're perhaps less instinctively, vicariously attached to their nation state than previous generations might have been. Do you see that changing? Is that process potentially going to go into if this lockdown lasts long enough? Well, I think that uh, one thing that's worth saying, though, if I may say it, to counter the point about the lack of travel, the sudden uh, cessation of travel, is that we live in such a, a digitalized world, you know, with the internet and so on. Can you imagine if this had happened in the mid-1990s, for example? I think then you really would have had a retreat, so to speak, to the bunkers of the different nation-states who would just have to struggle as best they could because communications would be so fractured. Communications are not so fractured because of living in the internet age. So that I think while you may well, as I hope you will actually, get a greater belief in what the role the government can play, the importance of it playing that role, the importance of it not being tribalized, the importance of democratic controls on government and checks and balances within government, and the importance of those governments working together internationally. I think that the hollow sort of uh, globalism, as you described it, I think that that really, uh, that came of a belief that the state wasn't really essential. And I think it's simply we forgot how important the state is on all aspects, you know, economic, social, cultural, of our lives. We're reminded of that. Hopefully that will lead to a re-empowering of states internally in a non-tribal, more democratic way, ideally in the countries we know. But I think that in turn can actually be part of the re-empowering of international institutions as people push their governments to act internationally, which is the only way you can effectively act against a continuing epidemic or pandemic. 
Ian, do you see this changing the way that nations relate to each other? Will this change diplomacy either at a, a macro level, in, as in grand power strategizing, or even a micro level? And this is a conversation we've had in some of our other programs where diplomats and politicians have talked about when you have to do this stuff by Zoom, you don't get those informal conversations that happen in corridors and next to coffee machines uh, at which a surprising amount of business can get done. Well, I don't know. If you told me that you had Biden instead of Trump, but you had to do Zoom instead of in person, I'm not sure we're losing that much. <laughs> you know, he's done a fair amount of damage with a lot of uh, individual allies around the world. But what, what's really happening structurally is that American exceptionalism is shifting from being about values, however hypocritical at times, to being about power. And I don't see that going away after this crisis is over. In fact, in some ways it's accelerating. The asymmetry of power between the United States and its allies is likely to be accelerated by this conflict, particularly because of the empowerment of technology companies, which the United States and China dominate. The Europeans and other countries are nowhere. I think the role of the US dollar as the global reserve currency is not weakening in the next three years. If anything, it's probably going to strengthen. Europe is probably fragmenting more. Clearly, Brexit is a part of that. The concern of middle-income countries with much greater debt burdens and an inability to service them, China with massive exposure to the weakest countries in the world and massive corporate debt that they're going to have a hard time finding sustainable, but being kicked out or kept away from other markets. Just in the last few hours, the UK changing its role, saying uh, Huawei is going to be kicked out of all UK 5G moving along with the Americans, the Canadians, the Australians, and other countries. So as we see a movement, not to end globalization, but a trajectory towards more fragmentation and more deglobalization, I think that the United States is in a more powerful position, objectively, even as it doesn't lead by example very well. And that makes it harder to rebuild the kind of international structures that I think we're all hoping for on this call. Do you think that the deficit in the United States, which has now reached such a level, may actually begin to cause problems for the currency in the coming years? The answer is not in the near to medium term. I mean, the fact that the United States still is overwhelmingly the largest security and, and military power in the world, outspending the next seven countries together. I mean, the Japanese are the largest single external holder of American debt. And they're not about to shift, not only because they think it's a good investment, but also because they really value the American defense umbrella. And I think you can say that for a number of countries. Again, the impact of the American tech companies and the fact that technology displacement and digital economy displacement of brick and mortar and the real economy gives the Americans a lot more influence over the advanced countries in the world. The, the fact that the U.S. is exporting energy and food and has much stronger banks than the Europeans do when the banking systems are going to be under more stress. So your point is well taken. And I think if you look out 10, 20 years, the United States may well be selling off some of the good China pun not intended. But for the next three to five, actually, I think America's position is going to be a lot stronger and, and the debt's just not going to play into it. We are approaching that 
part of the programme at which we try to draw, if not necessarily an actual conclusion, then some meagre amount of optimism from the gloom currently shrouding the world. And Teresa, I'll come to you finally. If, as Ian was suggesting there, we are about to embark on something of a process of deglobalisation, and if this pandemic turns out to be with us for a while, and that that therefore constrains our opportunities to travel and explore, even emigrate. Do you perceive any hope that it might compel people to actually take a longer, harder look at their own countries, where they happen to live, and think, well, how can I help fix things here? I share Philip's limited optimism in that this will provide an occasion to remind people of the significance of national and local governments, the importance of having those governments be strong enough to do the jobs that we really care about. One cause for optimism, simply, we haven't really talked about it before, but I will just say, you know, pandemic disease, what we're suffering right now is a once in a generation event, true, but um, there have been many generations in the history of the world. And, you know, if we think about the certainties of life, death, taxes, and disease, right? You know, there have been pandemics before, there have been epidemics before. What tends to happen historically, if you look, is that people don't remember them very well after because they were so traumatizing. People just tended to move on. I mean, what's different here is the idea that this is going to be protracted. It'll be of indeterminate duration. And I, on balance, I'm less optimistic and I'm more pessimistic precisely because I see it as exacerbating tendencies especially if lockdowns continue or get reimposed, exacerbating these tendencies of moving from actual social interactions or the sort of relations of trust between neighbors or co-citizens to more and more sort of parasocial interactions where none of our interactions with people who aren't in our immediate circle take place in an unmediated way. And I think one of the reasons that partisanship and polarization are so bad in the United States is to do with this kind of parasociability in a large country. I think that the United States is exporting that kind of polarization culturally beyond its borders. And I think that what's really unprecedented in the current situation is the presence of the internet as a way of connecting people, even as we're disconnected locally. So I might hope that this leads to a strengthening of governmental institutions locally and a kind of demand for accountability and competence in those institutions. But at the same time, I think there's this tendency to feel ever more connected with people far away on the basis of a sense of kind of shared cause or kind of shared belonging, which is loosening ever more our attachments to place and our desire to sort of get involved or to hold our governments accountable. That's all we have time for today. Thank you very much to our guests, Ian Bremer, Philip Pettit and Teresa M. Bejan. Thanks also to our producers, Augustin Machilari, Charlie Filmacourt and Louis Harnett O'Mara. The programme was edited by Maylee Evans and today's studio manager was Louis Allen. From me, Andrew Miller, thanks very much for listening.